United by a shared history and a common struggle, for centuries, the peoples of Latin America have fought to unite. A united Latin America is an idea as old as Latin America itself. Despite this, the dream has not yet been realized. But it is a cause not yet abandoned either. The dream of a united Latin America is perhaps best illustrated by Simón Bolívar, the liberator of America, whose legacy and struggle was touched upon recently by Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador in a speech to commemorate the 238th anniversary of Bolívar's birth. Es ya inaceptable la política de los últimos dos siglos. The politics of the last two centuries, characterized by invasions to install or remove rulers at the whim of the superpower, is already unacceptable. Let's say goodbye to impositions, interference, sanctions, exclusions, and blockades. Let us apply instead the principles of non-intervention, self-determination of peoples, and peaceful settlement of disputes. Let us start a relationship on our continent under the premise of George Washington, according to which nations should not take advantage of the misfortune of other peoples. I'm aware that it's a complex issue that requires a new political and economic vision. The proposal is nothing more nor less than to build something similar to the European Union, but connected to our history, our reality, and our identities. In this spirit, the replacement of the OAS by a truly autonomous body, not a lackey of anyone, but a mediator at the request and acceptance of the parties in conflict in matters of human rights and, and democracy, should not be ruled out. It is a great task for good diplomats and politicians like those that, fortunately, exist in all the countries of our continent. What is proposed here may seem utopian. However, it must be considered that without the horizon of ideals, one cannot get anywhere and therefore, consequently, it is worth trying. Let's keep Bolivar's dream alive. Mantengamos vivo el sueño de Bolivar. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast powered by Common Frontiers and allies in the Canadian labor movement. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspective of people on the front line of social struggle and change in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City, with a decade of experience supporting social transformations and revolutionary struggles in Latin America through my work and activism. Raul Buruano, a Colombian community organizer in Toronto and the program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. López Obrador's call to replace the Organization of American States caused a stir throughout the region. Although he was certainly not the first to make that demand, the election of a series of leftist governments throughout the region in recent years, and the servile attitude of the OES's Secretary General, not to mention his leading role in the 2019 coup in Bolivia, suggested that perhaps the moment had finally arrived. That possibility was put to the test recently with the gathering of regional heads of state and governments in Mexico City for the sixth summit of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States on September 18th, the first such summit in many years. Ahead of the meeting, the governments of Bolivia and Venezuela backed the call to replace the OAS. This should come as no surprise since these two countries are arguably those most targeted by U.S. imperialism and, of course, by OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro specifically. We explored U.S. and Canadian imperialism in Latin America in our first episode. I invite our listeners to listen to that episode to learn more about how imperialism functions. 
Nonetheless, it is worth revisiting the topic briefly. Our friends at Gaussachen News kindly shared with us this interview with Juan Ramon Quintana, former minister of the presidency under Evo Morales, who explains what drives U.S. foreign relations. The U.S. isn't a democracy, it's an empire, and it behaves like an empire. Empires have geopolitical, economic, social, and cultural interests, and they pursue them by dominating territories outside their borders and submitting them to the needs of their power. What an empire does is establish the means of intervening throughout the world, right? That's why I claim that there isn't a coup in Latin America that doesn't have the United States fingerprints all over it. There haven't been coups in Latin America without the involvement of the U.S. There could be some exceptions, but certainly the vast majority in the latter half of the 20th century and all of the coups in the 21st century have been promoted, financed, planned by the governments of the United States. So, why do they pursue coups? To topple governments, destroy governments, destroy nationalist progressive political processes in Latin America, so the United States can install new governments that will serve their economic, geopolitical, and cultural appetites. So it behaves like an empire, and this empire behaves this way by relying on its military power. It's not an empire that develops democratic capacities, that develops friendships, cohabitation with international society, etc. No, it flaunts the United Nations, its norms, the UN conventions. It launches war whenever it feels like it. It intervenes under practically its own rules in other countries. For this empire, the United Nations practically doesn't exist. As the sixth summit of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states moved forward, the topic of the future of the OAS was absent from the agenda. So what happened? Mexican political analyst Gabriel Guerra told W Radio that according to some diplomats, the conditions were not in place for the issue to be addressed. Despite not being invited to the summit, it's clear that the influence of the United States was nonetheless felt. It would appear that some regional leaders, when made to decide on whether to serve the empire or their own national interests, opted to serve imperialism and prevented the topic from being broached. It soon became clear what states opted to play this spoiler role when Mario Ablo Benitez, president of Paraguay, and Luis Lacalle Po, president of Uruguay, both ideologically aligned with U.S. imperialism, publicly stated their disagreement with the government of Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela. Despite the diplomatic fracas, the SELAC summit was widely considered a success. The leaders gathered issued the Mexico City Declaration a 44-point document that included a condemnation of unilateral coercive measures, called for the creation of the Latin American and Caribbean Space Agency, and approved the plan to strengthen the capacities for the production and distribution of vaccines and medicines in the region, which was presented by the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean. Although, as mentioned, the topic of the OAS was not addressed, the Mexico City Declaration did affirm the members, quote, commitment to build a fairer, more inclusive and harmonic international order based on respect, international law, and the principles of the UN Charter, which includes sovereignty equality between states, peaceful resolution to controversies, international cooperation, no intervention in nations' internal affairs, and the right of each member to construct their own political system, free of threats, attacks, and unilateral coercive measures." End quote. After political considerations in the region made the holding of a summit impossible only a few years ago, SELAC appears to have been rescued from its deathbed. Not an insignificant achievement. SELAC now counts on the necessary preconditions to perhaps eventually replace the OAS. So, 
On today's episode, we speak with Montreal-based writer and political activist Yves Engler, who has extensively covered Canadian foreign policy issues and is an expert on U.S. and Canadian imperialism. Yves shares with us his analysis of the regional situation, and we begin with a question from Raúl Burbano. Thanks, Yves, for joining us. We're talking a little bit about uh, multilateral institutions, uh, and as you know, Eve's imperialism uses multilateral institutions like the Organization of American States to overthrow governments, uh, you know, and, and create, you know, an impact different institutions. So, for example, creating uh, the Lima Group, which you know has no international standing. Uh, we saw most recently with the election in Bolivia how the OAS aggressively. Uh, you know, try to overthrow uh, or use the elections as a tool to overthrow the government. We've seen the aggressive policy towards Venezuela. You know, can you tell us a little bit about what this says about the lengths in which the ruling class will go, uh, you know, to, to in order to overthrow progressive governments? And what can we do as sort of activists on the ground to confront these, these aggressions and not get confused about these institutions? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say with Canadian foreign policy is the preference is usually to get the UN or the Organization of American States, if it's something to do with uh, this hemisphere, to okay whatever uh, uh, aggressive move they have. If they can't get the UN or the OAS to go along with it, then they set up something like the Lima Group, uh, which was set up because they, at that point, they couldn't get the Organization of American States to, to, uh, to uh, condemn the Venezuelan government. So they set up this out of thin air uh, association with, uh, with the Peruvian government. Presumably, the uh, Christian Freeland, then Canada's foreign minister, was doing that with a, a certain level of um, awareness from Washington, that Washington was keen on, on, on the setting up of the Lima Group. But so, so the, you know, the, and then the Canadian government will go with just, if, if they can't get like, you know, Peru, it obviously sounds better if it's the Lima Group than if it's the Ottawa Group, or, or, or certainly than the Washington Group. So, you know, you want the best public relations possible. So to have a, a, a Latin American country, uh, South American country, to uh, to uh, have its name as the as the kind of seeming like the instigator of the of the project when again it really was you know Justin Trudeau called his Peruvian counterpart in 2017 before the establishment uh, the formal establishment of the Lima Group in, in in August of 2017 with and the the communique that came out was you know talks about Venezuela and talks about kind of like is part of laying the basis for the Lima Group. Um, so, so that's that's uh, you know it's it's obviously there's a public relations part to it, um, and and then the Canadian government will you know like UN is best, OAS is good, uh, you know some sort of like created coalition like the Lima Group or like the core group in Haiti, uh, and then if that doesn't work, then they'll go with just Canada the US, like you know when they're bombing Syria or, or uh, Iraq recently, it was just Canada the US, and it wasn't even a NATO coalition, it wasn't even a Lima Group. Um, so that's that's how that's how uh, that's how imperialism works, and uh, they they're conscious of public relations, uh, and these these uh, multilateral forums uh, have an element of them that are that are public relations, and how do we uh, challenge that? I agree, it's not it's not easy, right? When when the OAS is saying that there was dubious elections in Bolivia, and that's being you know, thrown around as the justification for ousting. Uh, Evo Morales, um, the way that we can counteract that, I mean, is to, you know, one was the efforts done to show, hey, well, it made total sense that rural areas uh, 
uh, had more support for Evo Morales, and those votes came in later, and therefore the the you know the changing of the numbers as the vote count went on was to be expected beforehand. But the other way we challenged that is to show, well, the OAS did something very similar in Haiti, uh, both in 2000 and then in 2010, right? The OAS was used by uh, Hillary Clinton, Lawrence Cannon, then Canada's foreign minister, to basically say that the candidate that was in second place in the elections in 2010 in Haiti, who was the governing candidate, was from this modestly social democratic Rene Preval's party, that in fact it was this extreme right wing former uh, Duvalier, uh, Tonton Makout, uh, Michel Martelly, who was actually in second place during the election. So th this, what happened in Bolivia was 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 flagrant. It was clearly designed to uh, subvert democracy to, to advance imperialism. But it was it was you know it's part of a pattern that we've seen from the OAS, not just in general in supporting imperialism, but specifically using election shenanigans to to you know put the candidate in place that they that you know Washington and Ottawa uh, want. Uh, you mentioned something interesting, you know, that they, it's better to call it the Lima group or, you know, instead of the Ottawa group and much less the, the Washington group. But you wrote in one of the pieces looking at the, the experience of the Lima group that Canada was maybe the most active member of the coalition. So can you tell us a little bit more about the way, the role that Canada plays specifically in advancing the interests of imperialism as a whole, you know? So, oh, Obviously, the United States is always interested in defending its interests, but Canada kind of plays this this dangerous role, trying to use its reputation, unearned in my opinion, as a as a good faith actor in the world, to try to advance. So, tell us a little bit more about Canada's specific role in advancing the interests of the the global ruling class of of, of capital in Latin America. Well, I mean, I think there's different facets to it. You know, with regards to mining, for instance, Canada is just a you know leading force all across the continent, and uh, Canadian capital is a you know major player. And the Canadian government does all kinds of things to advance the interests of Canadian mining companies. Um, but more at the sort of broader level, which I think is what you were were kind of uh, uh, referring to, and the sort of like the public relations element is that, you know. Canada does look good next to the U.S. If you take a you know history, uh, the history of it, it, Canada isn't as it's not as powerful and it hasn't been as belligerent as the U.S. There's a long history of Canada uh, using its uh, good name. I, 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 I kind of have a difficult time saying that, but but using somewhat of the perception of of, of of less aggressiveness than the U.S. And I think the Lima Group is clearly that. The Lima Group is is quite clearly the the Canadian government is not as negatively perceived. I mean, officially, the U.S. wasn't part of the Lima Group, right? Even mm -hmm. though American officials often presented the Lima Group and all that kind of stuff, um, but they really played that angle up. As you were saying, you know, the Lima Group is is predominantly. A, you know, a public relations uh, group, uh, and it's really to further the goals of U.S. you know intervention and Canadian foreign policy in Venezuela. But you know, obviously, with the elections of uh, Pedro Castillo, and you know, the leftists in Peru, uh, you know, the the Lima group is pretty much you know done. Like, unlikely it's going to continue. Uh, I mean, it'd be kind of hard to continue with the you know with the Lima group without a, without a Lima uh, partner. So the question around that is, you know, what what does that say in terms of Canada's foreign policy towards Venezuela? Do you think that's going to change? Do you think that something new is going to come up? And, you know, any, any insight into what Canada will do now without, you know, its main, its main go-to, which is the Lima Group? 
Yeah, I, I think that the the uh, Trudeau government definitely just wants this to um, to kind of quietly go away. Uh, they they don't uh, they don't want to uh, put any uh, uh, attention towards the Lima Group, and and unfortunately, but not unsurprisingly, the dominant media has gone completely along with this uh, process, right? Where they just complete silence about the fact that Lima has left the Lima Group. So here you have this this coalition that the Canadian government was like you know spearheading and promoting and had that big meeting uh, after Juan Guaido, the first Lima Group meeting after Guaido uh, self-proclaimed in Ottawa and all this, you know, Trudeau spoke to it and they paid to bring the officials from countries around the hemisphere up and, and all kinds of, you know, really kind of made it a big media moment. And now, you know, two and a half years later, just total silence about the fact that a whole bunch of countries have left, uh, have left the, um, the Lima Group, and so, so I think that that I think I think that they obviously understand. They've understood this is you know not even the last couple of weeks since the the Lima Group officially collapsing, but it's been clear that the 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 Juan Guaido strategy is a is a disaster now. That's been that's been clear for quite a while. Part of um, of the uh, nature of of imperialism is that you can you can fail, and uh, and uh, so what? I mean, the, the consequences aren't. You know, to Canada. I mean, and the consequences aren't even to they aren't to Canada in general, and they aren't to even the Liberals. If the media just ignores the whole failure, the Liberals don't even have any you know political cost for 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 this flagrant uh, a failure. And the consequences are on Venezuelans primarily, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, Venezuelans that have left the country because of the economic you know, downturn because of the sanctions. It's Venezuelans that are, have, you know, had all the sort of distortions to their, you know, political life. You know, this is kind of how the nature of how uh, uh, imperialism uh, uh, works. And uh, so there won't ever be any um, uh, recognition that they either did something tactically wrong or morally wrong. I think we can also debate whether it's tactically wrong, even if you don't overthrow the Maduro government. I think that there's a logic behind the punishment that was inflicted as a message to other uh, countries um, that, you know, if you fall out of line, that you we're going to sanction to the, your economy to the point where you know things just go completely uh, completely awry. Um, obviously, on the flip side, the the Venezuelan people have have um, have shown that they they uh, they don't you know even if they're not all on board with the with the government that they don't want Washington and Ottawa and others to tell them what to do. And there's a sort of uh, an anti-imperialist uh, self-respect kind of uh, dynamic that 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 has uh, that I think is really Partly what propelled, but part the main thing actually what's you know led to to the it not you know the coup and those efforts not working, um, but but there is also a message you know a global message that we can do this to you and and uh, and uh, if you you know if you follow the line, um, but yeah I mean it, it's really up to that's where the social movements and that's where the progressive organizations this country come in is it's up to us to you know fight to even talk about this failure of, of Canadian foreign policy or this, this, you know, the collapse of the Lima group. Also, even things like, you know, uh, one of the reasons Canada lost its bid for a United Nations Security Council seat uh, last summer was because Venezuela was the only country that was publicly campaigning against Canada. And there were some reports that said that the Venezuelan influence through the non-aligned movement 
uh, swayed some countries to vote against Canada's uh, bid for the Security Council seat. So that was a you know a small uh, cost uh, uh, to the to the Liberal government. But again, the dominant media never you know reported on on on, on that ang angle of you know why Canada lost. Um, so, so there are def definitely some uh, definitely some signs of you know uh, a cost to the Trudeau government or to to Canada, uh, but it but it really is it's important for the progressive movements to um, uh, to raise these issues to so that you know the the population understands that that this is happening and that, that I think the vast majority of Canadians don't like the idea of of uh, of Canada being so directly involved in this you know imperialist intervention and interventionist alliance that's you know on top of that uh you know failing uh um so i think that it's up to uh to social movements to try to to, to force the issue onto the uh onto the d discussion table yeah similarly i feel like there hasn't been enough a discussion about canada's place in the hemisphere and i mentioned that because coincidentally in that same election for the united nations security council seat the country that won from the latin america caribbean region was Mexico, and it was Mexico that hosts that is hosting the dialogue between the Venezuela government and the Venezuelan opposition. And so, all that to say that we recently saw in, in a meeting of the foreign ministers of the of the CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean Countries, calling for the OAS to be replaced and to build a new institution, something more akin to to the EU. He specifically said as well that Canada and the U.S. shouldn't be included. Right? And it was the same logic behind the founding of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, that the affairs of the, of the countries should be left to the countries of the region, excluding these two. But I think perhaps there isn't enough an understanding of why that's important. So why is it that Canadians, people in the United States, need to reanalyze their relationship with the countries of the Western Hemisphere? Well, I think the, the rest of the hemisphere excludes Canada because it views Canada as being, you know, primarily aligned with the lead hegemon of the U.S., which has done so much to undermine and, and you know, destroy <laughs> progress and democracy and, and advancement in, in, in the hemisphere. And I think that so that's why those those uh, uh, Canada has been excluded. And, and, and again, there's like no mention about that in the dominant Canadian media, about the fact that the rest of the hemisphere uh, uh, set up has set up organizations to explicitly exclude uh, explicitly exclude um, uh, Canada. I, one thing I do kind of I think an interesting point to to look at on some of the stuff is that you know Mexico is part of the uh, the free trade agreement with Can with the U.S. and and uh, and um, and Canada, and and the idea is that we do these things, Canada does these things because we're so economically dependent on the US and therefore we basically have to be you know, a bad actor in Haiti or Afghanistan or whatever because the US forces us to because they have, you know, we have this economic dependency. Well, Mexico has that similar economic dependency on the US and the, Mexico is not sending fighter jets to bomb Libya. Mexico is not sending uh, you know, 40,000 troops to Afghanistan. And, and in, in the case of Venezuela, Mexico is trying to uh, to 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 actually have you know to do I think the you know the morally right diplomatic thing was to try to figure out a solution to the to the uh, to the uh, uh, internal and, and external conflict. Um, and so I think that we have to kind of that to compare Canadian foreign policy to Mexican foreign policy. 
I think is quite helpful for a lot of progressive Canadians. And it leads one towards the fact that it's, it, there's, there's elements of, of racism, I think, that are part of understanding Canadian foreign policy and, and how it positions itself to the world. There's uh, historical elements of Canada's uh, uh, relationship to uh, British and, and I don't think there's any country, Canada has this uniquely privileged relationship to the two main empires of the past two centuries. And, and it's an incredibly fluid um, shift from being totally tied into British imperialism where Canadians, you know, Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario was like uh, uh, training soldiers to go uh, fight with the British in all across Africa and India and all across the world and become the governors of British uh, uh, colonies in Africa. Um, that so it's totally tied into to, to British imperialism, and then it just before and with the World War II, very fluidly shifts in with with uh, with uh, with U.S. Uh, uh, imperialism. Um, and so I think that there's there's a there's a uh, there's a there's a whole kind of history there that I don't think that there's almost any recognition within Canada of that of of its you know ties to the you know basically the worst foreign policies of the past two hundred years. I mean that's let's call it in that kind of moral language is the worst foreign policies of the last two hundred years. Canada has had a you know close connection, and the Canadian um, the Canadian elite have have you know very much benefited from that. To just give one example of that you know with the U.S. that predates World War II, when the Americans took control of Cuba, there were still restrictions on US banks' foreign operations. So the preferred banker of the US occupation of Cuba in the early 1900s was the Royal Bank of Canada. So Royal Bank of Canada became the biggest bank in Cuba uh, because the Royal Bank officials were very well tied in with Washington and there was restrictions on foreign bank, US banking uh, internationally. And so, and so that's like a really concrete, I mean, I think that Canadian, you can find example after example of, of, of Canadian uh, capital benefiting from the, relate, the broad relationships of, of imperial domination the Americans have, have uh, led across the hemisphere. But you can also find very concrete examples of a one-to-one -one connection of, of the US intervenes, then Canadian corporate interests benefit uh, 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 directly. So that's why Canada has been excluded from the from CELAC and, uh, and and other efforts. And I also should point out the the Alan Cullum, um, who is this Canada's special advisor, the guy that was hired to lead uh, the the um, the campaign against the Venezuelan government uh, in Ottawa. He was a former Canadian ambassador in Venezuela. Um, he 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 was Canadian ambassador to the OAS. He he was he's been you know a whole whole bunch of positions, uh, and then he retired. I think something around like 2015. He he then did uh, a, a series of I guess reports or, or or presentations at foreign affairs committees, and to to hear his language on on uh, on, uh, on 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 CELAC on efforts uh, uh, on on UNASUR as well on on efforts on regional integration. He's completely and utterly hostile right he's obviously totally hostile hostile to the to the bolivarian uh, alliance and uh, things like petro caribe and you know the, the specifically venezuela instigated initiatives but he's also totally hostile to just the whole idea of, of regional integration and i think he he represents somebody who is at the at the higher end of the uh, consciousness within Canadian foreign policy establishment in understanding 
exactly where Canada's relationship to the to the hemisphere uh, is, and that it's one of you know we are we want to destroy efforts at uh, the rest of the hemisphere uh, building alliances to try to weaken U.S. domination because Ottawa is tied to that U.S. domination of of the hemisphere. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you kind of kind of hit the you know the nail on the head is you know Canada's hostile to regional integration because it impacts politically and economically the interest of Canada and the U.S. Uh, in in the region. And so, I mean, you know, we saw during the Pink Tide era, right? Leftist governments came into power. They created you know these very progressive and inclusive uh, institutions, Nassau and Select that we've been talking about. But then just as fast when the, you know the right wing governments took over. Uh, you know, we saw the dismantling of these institutions just as fast. So there's obviously a weakness within that. I mean, it's great that they, you know, they came out and, and they served a purpose, but then they were quickly dismantled. And we know that imperialism works to dismantle them because they are a threat uh, to economic and, and political interests. So what are kind of the, some of the lessons learned you think that, you know, we could learn from that? Because if we just, if it, if it just focused on progressive governments maintaining these, then how, do, how, how easily they're dismantled shows that there's a weakness in that. And, and how can we kind of keep those going, you know, beyond progressive governments so that as institutions, they go, you know, they live longer than, than the governments. Yeah, I would like to see, I think we should take the long-term perspective on that. I would say we take a 30, 50 year perspective. I think there's still a chance that a lot of this, uh, there's been, a, there's been a, uh, a weakening of those institutions in the past few years, but that, 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 the, that we might see something positive if we take a, you know, a 30, 50 year perspective on this. That's my hope, of course. Uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not following the these you know specifics of of uh, where that's where all those uh, uh, developments with the, with Unisur and CELAC are. But but um, but but uh, um, I think that that's kind of um, the the uh, needs to be kept in, in mind. And the fact that there is a kind of return to sort of uh, progressive governments bodes well for that that possibility but of course this this has to be i mean the how do you keep that going i mean i think that's that's mostly for 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 uh for governments uh and social movements in in the hemisphere uh, i think for us for people in 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 in, in you know in, in in canada from from my perspective it's about you know trying to raise it and lessen the ability of the canadian government to engage in efforts to destroy those those regional integration right and 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 that's where uh, you know the Lima Group is clearly designed to destroy regional integration. I mean, it's nominally a form of integration, but really it's a, a form of trying to destroy regional integration. Um, you know, the organization American States is a, you know is a complicated one, right? On, on one hand, it's clearly a, a tool, historic tool of imperialism, but there are some elements to to its its uh, operation that 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 are not just clear cut uh, on that. And there's been, you know, some moments where the OAS was, you know, less, uh, less of a destructive institution. And, and, um, and uh, so, so, you know, how, how to, you know, relate to that. Um, uh, I think it, it, it's a good, you know, a good call for progressives in this country to call for actually, you know, the withdrawal. Uh, clearly, it's clear we should be calling explicitly without any hesitancy withdrawal of the Lima group, withdrawal of the core group in Haiti. And I think with maybe a little bit more hesitancy, hesitancy Canada's withdrawal from the, from the, from the OAS. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, how, how to, you know, 
it's uh, I think that's the, um, for social movements and progressive governments in the hemisphere to to uh, to figure out how to overcome the, the really quite frankly short term destructive thinking of the of the uh, far right governments and trying to uh, to break uh, regional integration, which I think ultimately is going to just going to be clearly better for the, the hemisphere for the vast majority of the population. Even some of those right wing capitalists that are, that are trying to uh, trying to destroy uh, um, those efforts. Before we go, there's a piece of the conversation around regional integration that we haven't yet touched on. Regional integration isn't something that only happens in the halls of power and meetings between presidents and prime ministers. It's also a process that happens from below, between movements and organizations. Indeed, it is here where the seeds that eventually grow into bodies like Select are planted. We end today's program with a conversation with Marlene Sanchez-Galero, International Relations Secretary for the Nicaraguan Farm Workers Association. Marlene speaks to us about the work of her organization, her own experience in the region, and about the Latin American Institutes of Agroecology, or IALAS. Agroecology schools that train rural workers and youth, not just in sustainable food production methods, but also provide political education to transform them into political actors who organize to secure food sovereignty and struggle against imperialism. The IALAS are expressly linked to political struggles and have always had an internationalist vision training people from throughout the region, where regional integration is cultivated from below. We begin with words from Marlene about the first IALA, born in Venezuela in 2008. El IALA, el IALA Paulo Freire, eh, nace en el marco de un acuerdo eh, del ALBA Movimiento Social. Ya, eh, el IALA es todo un, un, un proceso que surge a partir de esas... De esas eh, the IALA Pablo Freire was born within the framework of an agreement through ALBA social movements. The IALA is a whole process that arises from that initiative that former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez proposed regarding the unity of peoples, but also the role played by social movements. So this creation is within this framework of an agreement between ALBA social movements created by the Chavez government with the Via Campesina and the organizations have carried out a historical struggle. And we from the Via Campesina, from the Latin American Coordinator of Rural Organizations, also known as CLOC, propose the support of parties that we believe propose a work agenda that guarantees the protection of the peasantry, that guarantees policies for the people, that guarantees policies or strategic initiatives that form part of a permanent fight against capitalism itself. And there is a sector that is mobilizing, that mobilizes and makes proposals. And despite the fact that there may be divergences or differences, it remains united and continues to make proposals. For us, the strengthening of this social movement is fundamental. And that because the Via Campesina, the CLOC, proposes the training of young people, because they are the ones who are going to assume a leading role the banner of struggle that these organizations that were formed many decades ago have been working on. And that they are going to have support. They're going to be there. They're going to be there mobilizing in the street to propose, well, a new way of living. For example, the ATC in Nicaragua, with an example from my country, the ATC in Nicaragua has been a peasant arm of the struggle. 
It is quite important, and it was born in the heat of the Sandinista popular revolution. And there is a whole accumulation of experiences of people, of leaders, of men and women who led that process, that they mobilized, who reached out to the peasantry and opened their eyes and said, we do not want this. We do not want this dictatorship, this Samosa dictatorship. We do not want it. We need to work to change our situation. So the ATC plays a very important role with all the leadership, with the organizational component oriented towards the people, that reaches the people. Because, as an example, Edgardo Garcia, who is the secretary general in the ATC structure, is a fairly active leader. And he is a peasant because he comes from the peasantry and he reaches the people. He reaches the people and makes the peasantry a very strong sector, so that with a strong sector, it also makes a contribution to the triumph of the popular Sandinista revolution. And thus, many organizations in Latin America make an important contribution to the success of these processes, to elect governments that have an agenda for the protection of the people, that tell you, I don't know if that would be the correct word, for development, but rather an agenda that promotes life, the life of the people, the life of the peasantry, of the workers, because it is necessary for the youth to take up these banners of struggle at the organizational level. These causes of struggle for this model of sustainable production, towards this model that is against imperialism, so that these youth become facilitators of popular processes, popular processes for this peasant production, young people who are also promoters because the IALAs are those spaces. They're integral spaces that allow us to have the youth to be equipped with a conscience, who are not going to go and work in those large transnational companies, who are not gonna to go to work as salaried employees, but instead young people who are part of these organizations as facilitators, as coordinators, promoters of agroecology that also have political awareness. For us, this pedagogical, political part of strengthening the territories is very important, that among the youth there be this popular education, where they do not go on to be an engineer or technologist, who is going to work for agrochemical companies such as Bayer, for example, but a young person who is going to rescue the ancestral knowledge, that is going to recover that culture of that peasant agriculture that, as we say, cools the planet. So that is why it is the importance of this youth that is educated to have another vision, that it be a youth that decolonizes what they have made us believe about the green revolution. And this is a very important fight in all our countries in Latin America, because we say that IALAs are that space of that integral formation that is not going to repeat the same model of the green revolution. It is an agroecological revolution, and it is quite strong, because in IALAs, we train people who will also have an impact on their organizations, in their communities, who are capable of proposing policies, programs that are aimed at the peasantry, women, youth, for that reproduction of the life in the country. Then our objective is that return to the field. But we return to the field how? Well, prepared with tools that allow us to fight. The young person who is trained in the IALAs is invited to take part in that struggle, to that battle of ideas, to that battle of ideas and to those new proposals that we need. For us, the peasantry, for us, the women, for the workers. So for this reason, for us, this formation is fundamental, which is logically part of this fight against imperialism. That is, we are building, and we have made considerable progress in all this apparatus. 
We say if capitalism and imperialism have their schools, then we also have our training schools, our schools that we are creating. We are training people for the people. What is the most interesting thing that I experienced in the Ialas? Those experiences of people from abroad, those experiences that they bring from their territories, the forms of organization, the cultures, of course, and how we have advanced in the struggle for food sovereignty from that diversity of experiences that exist. So all that is important to me, and also that we have hope, that in different countries, we know that we have the same enemy. We have different ways of feeling that capitalism. What are those forms of struggle that we have in other countries? So the IALAs are those very important spaces for awareness. I'm gonna give you an example. At IALA, due to the pandemic, the Nicaraguan delegation is working separately from the international delegation. So what has been missing? What do I feel is missing? The young Nicaraguan who was born in revolution has different perspectives. So when you bring a young man who comes from Honduras from a strong fight against criminalization, when you bring a young man from Guatemala who is being displaced from the territories by the mining companies, by the same militarism, militarization. So when those spaces for exchange do not exist, then we have little awareness. So that experience that comes from the rest of the countries is missing. We do not have those spaces to be able to have greater awareness, to strengthen internationalism, to strengthen the solidarity that we must have between organizations, between countries. Those are the IALA. That's the program for today. Thank you again for listening. Please share this program with your friends and colleagues. If you like the show, leave us a review. It really helps us reach more people. As always, we want to thank the supporters of the show, especially Common Frontiers and the Canadian Labour Movement, including the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, and the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Special thanks to the creative team behind the operation, Guillaume Charvino-Quintal, Dr. André Lacroix, Michel Munchenatu, and Pamela Arancibia. See you next time. And hasta la victoria siempre. <laughs>